Well, this morning we're on our penultimate chapter um, of Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, chapter 15. And uh, just before the end of this letter, he lands on a fundamental, absolutely central, crucial point of Christian belief, namely the resurrection. So that's what we're going to look at. It's on page, as you've already heard, 1156 of the Church Bibles. As always, we're going to be looking at the whole chapter. So do please grab a Bible if you'd like to, um, to follow us. And uh, I'll just pray before we begin. Lord, thank you for your word, which brings life and truth. Send your Holy Spirit that we would have open hearts, minds, and ears to hear you speak to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So let me ask you something this morning. Do you believe in resurrection? Good, that's a good start. (laughs) Not just the resurrection of Jesus but that one day you will walk and run and talk and sing and eat and work and play and laugh and love in a world which is not totally unlike our own, but perhaps more like heaven come to earth. Because that's the promise of Scripture. We live in a world where people largely don't believe in resurrection in either Jesus' resurrection or their own. I see this all the time. I take a lot of funerals. I speak to a lot of families, and there's a lot of folklore out there about becoming a star in the sky when we die, or a spirit floating around in the atmosphere, or, or just a sense of dead loved ones looking over us, or, or else, oblivion, nothing at all. Many years ago, we went to the funeral of... Kirsty's uncle, and sadly the person who'd organised the funeral had got a humanist minister to take the funeral. And I'm sure that he, they meant well, but do you know what words they used at the committal, which is the moment when, we, when the person is committed to, to either be buried or cremated, these are the words they used. They declared, from oblivion we come and to oblivion we go. Can you imagine hearing anything more depressing, more hopeless than that. I can't. If someone said that at a funeral I paid for, I'd ask for my money back. (laughs) And the problem is, if you think that this life is all there is, that you just have this one life and then you die and that's it, then of course the tendency is to live selfishly, to get as much pleasure for ourselves as we can while we've got the time. Why would we want to spend our time working to help the poor or the exploited if you're just wasting precious recreational time? You might as well just get on with enjoying yourself. And I think a really challenging question for Christians today is this. Are we living, are we actually living as if we believed in the resurrection? Are our lives obviously different from those who don't believe, because we're convinced that Jesus not only died, but rose again, and so we will too. 
And the context of Paul's letter is that there were Christians in Corinth who had received the good news of Jesus in the past, but were beginning to doubt belief in the resurrection of the dead. So why does it matter? Isn't it good enough to simply believe that Jesus died for my sins? Isn't isn't that the gospel? Well, the answer is yes and no, because it's not the full gospel. It's part of the gospel, but not the whole gospel. The Apostle Paul is very clear about this. Verse 1 says, Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received on on which you have taken your stand. So Paul is announcing, I'm now going to tell you what the gospel is. Verse 2, by this gospel, you are saved. Well, you can't get much clearer than that. Verse 3, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, here we go, that Christ died for our sins, that's the first part of the gospel, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, but that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, that's the complete gospel. And Paul wants to remind his readers that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a real event in history. And what's more for them, it was very, very recent history. Few serious historians today, Christians or not, would doubt that Jesus was arrested and tried and flogged and crucified and buried in a tomb, or even that the tomb three days later was found to be empty. But only Christians believe that he died and was resurrected to new life on that first Easter Sunday. And this really, really matters. As C.S. Lewis put it, Christianity is a statement which, if false, is of no importance at all, and if true, is of infinite importance. And the resurrection is the linchpin of Christianity. If it didn't happen, then we were all, we're all wasting our time, as Paul says in verse 2. Then you have believed in vain. But the wonderful thing is, that the evidence in support of the resurrection is overwhelmingly strong. As Professor Thomas Arnold, who was appointed to the chair of modern history at Oxford, said, I know of no one fact in the history of mankind which is proved by better and fuller evidence of every sort than the great sign which God has given us that Christ died and rose again from the dead. So what made... Professor Arnold, so sure. Well, you need two things to make a resurrection. You need someone to die, and you need that same someone to come back to life. So let's take the first point. How many of you have seen Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ? Quite a lot of hands going up there. So you have some idea of what a Roman flogging was like. It was brutal. I could hardly watch it. It's well documented that many people actually died from the flogging alone, let alone being crucified. What's more, the Romans were master executioners. And since the penalty for a Roman soldier to mess up and mistakenly let some criminal go was death for himself, it's extremely unlikely that they would have made a mistake in Jesus' case. So, did Jesus die? Well, it seems impossible that he could have survived, as some suggest. And even more impossible that three days later, he could be up and about, fit and active, meeting and talking and eating with his disciples. It didn't happen like that, because Jesus died. 
But if he did die, did he really rise again? Well, again, the proof is overwhelming. All four gospel accounts describe and refer to his resurrection. But, say some of the doubters, all of the gospel accounts differ in some of the details. John says it was Mary who went to the tomb. Matthew says it was the two Marys. Mark says it was the two Marys and Salome. Luke says it was the two Marys and Joanna. And there are several other differences in detail in the four gospel accounts. This, some people say, is evidence that the gospels are unreliable. But if you think about it, this is nonsense. Ask any policeman or lawyer what they would expect from four different eyewitness statements concerning a road accident or a street mugging. If they all said exactly the same thing, the police would be the first to tell you that they would suspect collusion over the statements and that they shouldn't be trusted. They would expect them to describe the same major events, but to differ in secondary details. And that's exactly what we find in the Gospels. They all describe Joseph of Arimathea receiving Jesus' body and placing it in a tomb. They all describe a group of women going to the tomb early Sunday morning and finding the tomb empty. They all include a vision of angels telling them that Jesus has risen. But they do differ in secondary detail. And what's more remarkable is that no one would have dreamt of inventing this story in the culture of the day because women's testimony, sorry ladies, was considered to be extremely unreliable in that culture to the point that it wasn't allowable in court. And yet, all the Gospels have women as the first witnesses to the resurrection. So in fact, the wonderful thing is that far from being based on flimsy evidence, the closer you look at the resurrection accounts, the more unlikely it seems that it could or would have been made up. And Paul puts the witnesses to the resurrection center stage. Verse 3. Christ died for our sins, he says, according to the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And now here come the witnesses. He appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve, and after that to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also. Paul reminds the Corinthian Christians that not only did Jesus appear to literally hundreds of believers after he rose from the dead, but that most of them were still walking around. Most of them were still alive at the time of writing. They could go and ask any of them. And that's not surprising because this letter is so early in the church's history, some 20 years or so after the resurrection, that had Jesus remained on earth and not ascended to heaven, he would only have been in his mid-50s at the time this letter was written. So Paul's saying, look, there are dozens of Christians still walking around who saw the risen Jesus, so how could you doubt it? That's the first point. The resurrection is true. It's a historical fact. And if it's true, that changes our whole perspective. We become aware that this life is a very important but relatively small adventure compared to what awaits those who die in Christ. And what's more, this life becomes more important in a new way. 
Because we no longer have to worry about experiencing as much as we possibly can and get as much pleasure for ourselves in our life because we're set free from all that nonsense. We're free to learn to live, to be more like the one who created us, more like the one who died for us, free to give of ourselves rather than to take, free to love instead of to envy, free to bless instead of to complain, free to pour out our lives for others instead of to grab what we can get, free even from the fear of death. I'll always remember something that Simon Gilbo, uh, the missionary, and his colleagues used to say when they travelled in some of those dangerous parts of Africa. He used to say, as Christians, we can't lose. We're immortal until God calls us home, and then it gets even better. It's a win-win situation. Now, that doesn't mean we'll all go out on the mission field in Africa. Of course it doesn't. But it might mean that we could become a little bolder, reaching the lost, than satisfying our own personal comforts. So what is our role? What's our role in all of this? As people of the resurrection, what are we called to do? If you've got a Bible in your hands, would you turn briefly to Acts 1, verse 8. Acts chapter 1. It's on page 1092. Acts 1, verse 8, it's on page 1092. And this is just before Jesus ascends into heaven. The risen Jesus is with his disciples. He's commissioning them. And it's verse 8, Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And he says this, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of of the earth. So Jesus promises his followers power by his Holy Spirit. For what purpose? To be his witnesses to the very ends of the earth. And in so so saying, he clearly doesn't expect just the people he's talking to to get the whole job done. Rather, he was giving all Christians for all time their mission statement. As Darren Ruinzoin, I don't know how you pronounce his name, but he was one of the keynote speakers at New Wine, said last week, Christians don't get to choose our mission statement. Jesus has given it to us. You will be my witnesses. That's it. And the good news is that when we put our faith in Jesus and we're given the Holy Spirit and become his witnesses, far from missing out on life, life gets so much more exciting. In the first few years after coming to faith, I saw my wife Kirsty turn from objector to the Christian faith into a passionate disciple. I saw a murderer in Reading Prison come to faith and start praying for the other prisoners. I prayed with a dying friend who asked Jesus into her life just hours before she died. I've seen God heal miraculously in response to prayer. I've known a friend addicted to internet pornography be set free. I've seen the miracle of faith blossom in my daughter's life and I'm still believing for my son. And all these things happened long before I became a vicar. This is the gospel. This is normal Christian life. Death followed by resurrection. New life springing out of the old. And perhaps there are some people here this morning 
who need a resurrection in some aspect of your life. And if that's you, share that. After taking communion, head over to the prayer ministry on the carpet at the back. They would love to pray with you. And let's pray for that resurrection in that whatever aspect of your life is. Maybe it's a relationship that's gone sour. Maybe a financial crisis that feels like the world's about to end. Or maybe just a sense that your Christian witness has gone stale. Don't leave today without asking for the power of the Holy Spirit to transform that situation. And you know, one of the things I love about St. Matthews is that there are so many wonderful witnesses right here. Witnesses who support one another, love one another, pray for one another, who do practical things for one another, make meals for one another, who foster children who have no homes, witnesses who use their gifts for God's glory, witnesses who hang curtains for people who can't, witnesses who share the good news of Jesus Christ with others. On the last day of this summer term, after the children had gone home from school, I joined an end-of-term staff barbecue at Southcote Primary, where all the teachers from Southcote and Catesgrove, the Federation, um, came together to celebrate the end of the summer term. And Lisa Telling introduced me to one of the teachers at Catesgrove, who told me her story of how she had found Jesus in the last few weeks through the witness of another Christian teacher, and it had completely turned her life around. I cannot properly describe to you the sheer joy in her eyes as she told me her story. And I know that the witness of the church family here at St. Matthew's has led more people to Jesus in the last few months and to whom that has made all the difference in their lives. I love this passage of scripture. I often read it as a faith booster. However, I better move on fairly quickly because I haven't got through much of the chapter yet. (laughs) So so we're going to go through the rest very quickly. Are you ready? So just to summarize, in verses 2 and 3, we have the gospel. Jesus died for our sins and rose again. In verses 4 to 8, we have the witnesses to the resurrection. A role that we have inherited from those first apostles. And then in verses 9 to 19, Paul explains how Christ's resurrection makes our future resurrection both possible and certain. In verses 20 to 23, he reinforces this by explaining how, as sin entered the world through one man, Adam, so sin and death are overcome by one man, Jesus, as he died for our sins and rose again. In verses 24 to 28... Paul addresses what seems to have been a mistaken belief on the part of the Corinthian Christians who thought that those who had died in Christ should already have risen from the dead. And because they hadn't, they were starting to doubt the resurrection. And he explains that it would only happen, verse 24, it would only happen when the end comes. In other words, that resurrection will follow the final judgment when all those in Christ will be raised up. And then in verse 29, do you know, every now and again you come across a verse of scripture and you read it and you kind of do a double take and go, what? What, What's that about? Verse 29 is one of those. Now, there is no resurrection, sorry, now if there is no resurrection, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead is not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? 
What on earth is Paul talking about? Baptised for the dead? Well, it seems that some Christians in Corinth had adopted a kind of superstitious ritual which involved getting baptised on behalf of someone else, perhaps a family member who had died unbaptised, in the hope that it would save them. Now, I'm sure that Paul didn't support the practice, but he's simply facing them down with the logic of their actions. So he's saying, look, if if you're doubting the resurrection, what on earth are you doing getting baptised for a dead person? It's not going to make any difference anyway, is it? There's no point. Anyway, that's a bit of a red herring, but in case you wondered what that was about. Moving on, verses 30 to 34, Paul moves up a gear and explains that it's the resurrection which gives meaning and purpose to our lives as Christians. Why endanger ourselves, asks Paul, meaning if we're not gaining the salvation of others. And in what must rate as one of the best lines in the letters of Paul, he says, if I fought with wild beasts in Ephesus for merely human reasons, what have I gained? And you know, when I first read that, I really hoped it meant that he had been thrown to the lions and survived to tell the story. But then I read some of the commentaries about this passage, and it's generally agreed that the term wild beasts is the term that Paul used for his enemies in Ephesus, those who were trying to kill him, those who were trying to stone him. So I'm sorry, I think it's figurative and not literal. Verses 35 to 55, Paul makes one of the clearest statements anywhere in the Bible about what form our resurrected bodies will take. I'll just pull out a couple of points. Some people imagine that in heaven we'll all be sort of ethereal spirits floating around in heaven. Paul refutes this. In fact, if we think our bodies are physical now, then our new bodies are going to make these ones look like cardboard cutouts. Paul says our bodies are now perishable, but we will be raised imperishable, verse 42. In other words, if we think they're physical now, they're going to be way more physical then. Secondly, our bodies will be like Jesus' resurrected body. He says in verse 48, as is the man from heaven, in other words, Jesus, so also are those who are of heaven, in other words, the believers. Our bodies will be like Jesus' body. And you'll remember that Jesus' resurrected body had some points of continuity with his earthly body, the the scars that he showed them. But there were also some differences as several of the disciples took a little time to recognise or realise who he was. The resurrected Jesus could eat fish, but he could also walk through walls. Sounds pretty exciting to me. Although I do hope you can eat steak as well. And lastly... He brings it all back to Jesus. This victory over death, this victory over sin, all comes about, verse 57, through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so in summary, the resurrection is good news. It's the gospel. Christ died for our sins and rose again. As we come to take communion today, we remember not just his death, but also his resurrection. The witnesses to that resurrection bring us assurance of our salvation, proof, if you like, that the cross was effective in overcoming sin and death. And as Jesus' present-day witnesses, 
The resurrection provides you and I with our very purpose for living, our very purpose for Christian life. Witnessing to the love of God and the promise of eternal life in the power of the Spirit. And as Paul reminds us in his letter, and Jesus clearly tells us in our gospel reading this morning, no one comes to the Father except through Jesus. He's the only way. Let's pray.